Welcome to Focus on Success with Fazia Costi. Our program is designed to help you with executive function challenges. Our guest experts offer perspective, experience, and ideas to improve different aspects of your life. Now, here is your host, Fazia Costi. Hi, I'm Fazia Costi. I'm an executive function coach here in Phoenix, Arizona. And today I have Cynthia McCluskey, who um, I met probably about almost a year ago. Um, and she is just a, an incredible, incredible woman. And I'm so grateful that she came on the show today to talk to us about autism. And Cynthia has been involved in the autism community for probably over 19 years. Um, she's been on shows uh, such as Good Morning America, Lifetime. she's been on Lifetime TV as a parent um, and autism expert. Uh, she's been interviewed by local news organizations and the New York Times Magazine. Um, Cynthia, welcome, and uh, I really appreciate you coming onto the show. Could you tell us a little bit about you and your background and how you got involved with autism? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um... So, I got involved with autism when my son was diagnosed uh, with autism when he was two and a half. And uh, what I realized was that even though we had amazing insurance, I couldn't get coverage for any of his treatments, and there just wasn't a lot out there. Um, so, I, I started doing research and investigating things, and then... I ended up running a autism insurance bill here in Arizona with uh, six other moms, and we passed that legislation in 2008. Wow. Yeah, it was really, our state was one of the first states, and um, Autism Speaks actually didn't want to run it in the state because they didn't think we had a chance of getting it passed, and we did. So we spent three months down at the legislature and um, really fought for that change and benefit, really changed the landscape of Arizona over, you know, the last 14 years since that happened. And um, because of that, I became involved with Autism Society of Greater Phoenix. I'm currently the vice president. I um, sit on the IOC District West, which is the Human Rights Committee, and they oversee behavioral group homes. I also sit on the Governor's Advisory Committee for ASD. I work with the health plans, both Mercy Care and United Healthcare, for improving services for people on the spectrum. And uh, I just serve on a variety of committees advocating for families for choice in providers, choice in modalities, and a higher level of treatment. That's amazing. You have such a wealth of experience with autism. What, what do you think causes autism? What, what would you tell people when they ask you what causes autism? Well, first of all, we don't know because autism is diagnosed uh, based on behavior. And when you think about it, very few things are diagnosed based on behavior. I think what we know for sure is autism is a neurobiological disorder. 
It affects multiple systems. Um, if you listen to the experts now, they think there's well over 100 kinds of autism. And if you have a, over 100 kinds of autism, then you probably have a bunch of different causes. Absolutely. So there's a lot of controversy on, on what that cause is. Um, families have strong opinions one way and another. I mean, some people feel like it was vaccine related. Others feel like it wasn't. Um, and I don't think we really know. I, at the last thing I heard was that it would take a supercomputer 25 years to analyze the data to try to even come up with a possible cause. But wow. I think what we know is that there's over 100 different kinds. And so it's definitely not one cause. How prevalent is autism? Like in, in our society, you know, how many people do you think have a diagnosis of autism? It's hard to keep score because we keep changing the goalpost. So um, I'll say when my child was diagnosed, it was one in 500. Um, when uh, 10 years before that, it was one in 10,000. Um, I think it's one in 53 here in the state of Arizona. Wow. So it's really um, becoming more common. It is more common, but we also changed the diagnostic criteria. So it, it's, it's hard to know. We also misdiagnose. So women and girls present differently. And we've really neglected that diagnosing females and that's improving. So it's, I, I, I think it's hard to know. How, how do they how many differ? there are versus were, you know, it's. Sure. How, how, how does it differ for girls versus boys? Like, what do you, what would, if someone were to ask you, what should I look for in my child? You know, how would they differ between a boy and a girl or? Well, first of all, all the criteria was based off of research on boys. So there so, really isn't research on girls. There's new research coming up right now. UCLA is doing an amazing study on women and girls. Um, I heard a, a researcher who originally was a researcher in boys until her daughter was diagnosed. And then oh, she started looking and seeing that there was really very little research on girls. Um, girls tend to be more social. They're uh, better at masking uh, how they feel and are interacting. They're better at pretending. Lots of times girls won't get a diagnosis because they seem too social or they have good eye contact. Um, so you hear things like borderline personality disorder, mm -hmm. ADHD. Someone in my family, this was so frustrating because my childhood already had a diagnosis and uh, they got, their daughter was diagnosed with ADHD, sensory processing disorder, social cueing disorder, which isn't a disorder, um, oppositional defiance. And like, they have this myriad of things. And I, I said, you mean autism? <laughs> because that's what it is. And it took a long time to get the diagnosis because lots of people trained in diagnosing aren't trained in girls. So girls definitely present differently. And to get an appropriate diagnosis, you need to see somebody who's trained in girls. How, what symptoms should they look for? 
What, what symptoms would somebody look for? If, if they said, you know, I'm, I'm suspecting my child is, you know, possibly could be diagnosed with autism, what are the symptoms that they should look for before they go to a doctor? So I heard a wise doctor once say, if you ever in your mind ask yourself, could my child have autism? You've already done the screening and you do need an evaluation. So just by even thinking about the question, you've already answered the question by needing to pursue that. Um, Behaviors, it's very different because keep in mind, we're rating behaviors and every child with autism looks different. Um, But you will find that they uh, lack theory of mind. You'll find that uh, they'll participate sometimes in a lot of parallel play but not interactive play. They may not do pretend play. Um, You might see issues with language. Um, Almost everybody with autism has some uh, deficit in language presents differently in different people. Some kiddos have no language. Some kiddos lose all their language. Some kiddos have hyper language. (laughs) So language is somehow involved, but it presents differently. Some have behaviors, um, a lot of rigidity in thought, perseveration on uh, ideas. Um, The classic things are lining up toys, lining up cars, or playing with things sort of inappropriately, like picking up a car and watching the wheels spin over and over and over again, kind of the classic things people refer to. But, I mean, there's just so many different ways that you can present. But I think the thing is, if you're wondering, then you've already, you've already established that there's a concern and you should have an evaluation. So one of the things that um, I often do with my job is I refer out to different providers who can do evaluations. Does Autism Society have a list of providers um, that maybe somebody could go and, and look at to see who they should go to for an evaluation or should they just look up their closest um, psychologist? Or what do you recommend? How, how well, first of all, we do have a list of doctors that diagnose that have been recommended to us by families. Um, I wouldn't go to just any psychologist or any psychiatrist. So the people who can make diagnoses is in this state, because it depends on the state that you're in. But in this state, the people that can make a diagnosis are psychologists, psychiatrists, neurologists. Um, but you want to make sure that you're seeing someone who has a good reputation, um, especially if you have a child who's a girl. So then you want to look at somebody who specializes in girls or understands girls. And there's lots of good autism diagnosticians that are not good with girls. Uh, The other thing is looking for somebody that um, is experienced with high IQ, if you have a high IQ kiddo, Mm -hmm. because high IQ presents differently. And if you don't have someone who specializes in that, you can get a misdiagnosis. Um, I think it's always better to get a referral from somebody you already know than off of a list. Um, But the hard part in this state in getting a diagnosis is that there's not enough diagnosticians, so there's wait lists. 
So you can wait a year or more to get an evaluation from somebody. Um, and I'm working on a committee right now to see if we can get approval for a program at the University of Arizona. They have a new um, program with nurse practitioners that specialize in diagnosing autism. It's, it's a really rigorous program. Sydney Rice is in charge of that. Um, and our hope is to get the state to accept diagnoses from uh, people who've graduated from her program because, you know, the wait list is just way too long. And uh, without the diagnosis, it's sometimes hard to get services. Absolutely. Uh, what does Autism Society do for the local community to help maybe get them in touch with providers or uh, different support systems or things like that? So before COVID, we had like 25 or 26 meetings a month. Wow. That's a lot um, of meetings. <laughs> yeah, a lot of meetings all over the, all over the valley. Um, we have about 13 meetings now that are all via Zoom. So we serve uh, zero to 100. Um, we have support groups for parents. We have support groups for women. We have support groups for people who are Spanish-speaking only. We have uh, support groups for teens, support groups for adults. Uh, we have game nights. We have social uh, meetings. We have coffees for parents. Um, so we have a lot. And then the other thing that we do is, and, and this is what I primarily do for Autism Society, is we work on um, improving systems of care throughout the state. So that's, I serve on a variety of committees and I'm kind of a conduit from families to the system and letting them know what is working or is not working. The thing that I um, did this last year that I'm very proud of is I worked with Arizona Center um, of Law and the Public Interest, um, providers uh, who specialize in helping those who are nonverbal and need Ocom devices, which are they're like uh, iPads and other devices that help people speak when they don't have a voice. Um, I worked with Raising Special Kids and we advocated for over a year um, to get devices because the Division of Developmental Disabilities had over 400 families apply for these devices and they did not process those applications for over a year which is a huge civil rights issue. Um, yeah, that's a long time to wait for services. Uh, yeah, it's, it was really offensive and illegal. Um, and uh, through the advocacy of all the stakeholders, and I'm proud to be one of those stakeholders, the uh, Com device um, program has moved to the health plans. So both Mercy Care and United Healthcare. Uh, will be in charge of implementing that program now, and it'll no longer be at the Division of Developmental Disabilities. Wow, that's impressive. You, you so, do a lot of yeah. really good work. Uh, what what other me what medical issues um, affect um, kids with autism? Like, so when you're talking about healthcare, you're you're talking about communication devices. But healthcare also works with medical issues and psychiatric issues and psychological issues. What other issues 
would you um, see in autistic kids that the medical uh, community would need to uh, address? So um, I would say I'm an expert in EPSDT, and that's early periodic screening, diagnosis, and treatment. And that is language within the Medicaid uh, framework, and every state has to provide EPSDT services um, from zero to 21. And so it's the system's responsibility to screen for, evaluate, and diagnose and treat. And um, so one of the things I've been fighting for for many, many years is looking at comorbid medical conditions. When my son was originally diagnosed, he had horrible diarrhea that would literally burn the skin off of his legs. And when I took him to the doctor, they said, well, that's just autism. We can't help you, Um, which is horrible and offensive. And so we've come a long way over the last 20 years. We now know that uh, autism is a neurobiological disorder. Mm -hmm. Between 60 and 69% of all people on the autism spectrum have gastrointestinal disorders, anywhere from just diarrhea and constipation to Crohn's and encephalitis and um, esophagus. I can't say it right, but it's, but the little hairs on the back of the throat stand up and are like allergic to things. So there's a lot of gastrointestinal issues. Uh, 30% of people on the spectrum have seizure disorder. Um, uh, Significantly more than that have um, atypical uh, brain activity. Uh, sleep disorders are very common within the autism spectrum. ADHD is also very common. Of course, anxiety um, is very high. Immune dysfunction, mitochondrial disease, metabolic disorders, genetic disorders can be um, co-occurring. Um, yeah, just the, a lot of medical issues. So you really want a doctor who's well-versed in autism to partner up with the parents so that they're diagnosing their child appropriately and also giving them the treatment that's appropriate. So um, is that also something that you have uh, in autism society, a group of people that maybe our listeners could call in and get referrals to different doctors or? um, So, you know, it's very hard to find doctors in this state that understand the comorbid medical conditions of autism. It has improved, but it's still, it's still difficult. Um, and I can just give you examples of like, uh, we had one family whose child was headbanging for years and wore a helmet to protect her head and also was karate chopping her neck every single day. And she participated in a study where she was uh, she was part of the study um, that they weren't supposed to be looking for anything with her, right? And then when they went in there, they saw she had colitis all the way up from her stomach, all the way up through her um, throat, which is why she was karate chopping. And they also found that she has an abscess tooth. And when they removed the abscess tooth, she stopped headbanging. And when they treated the colitis, they she they she stopped neck chop, um, 
shopping. So oh I think my. when we're looking at it 20 years ago, there was really virtually nobody would acknowledge that there was comorbid conditions. I serve on a lot of committees where I'm advocating for looking at comorbid conditions and making sure we have experts. I think until very recently, we haven't had um, people that are very good. Uh, Dr. Fry at Phoenix Children's Hospital is an amazing researcher and he has a clinic at uh, Phoenix Children's Hospital where he sees uh, children and adults on the autism spectrum and looks at all sorts of conditions. He's doing some really amazing research, um, lots of different studies going on there. Um, I think what's hard is finding a pediatrician who can um, be well-versed in all the things that could be happening and then doing referrals. And so really it's about educating the parents about what to be looking for so they can be advocating within the system. The system still doesn't do a great job of screening for diagnosing and treating. If you look at the Down syndrome community, they have done an amazing job. They have a screening tool that is used by every pediatrician um, where they screen people with Down syndrome every year for a variety of comorbid medical conditions. And my dream is that eventually we'll have that for autism too. But we really don't have that now. And um, I think partly because autism spectrum disorder is controversial because there's so many issues about, you know, what is it caused by? Exactly. Uh, and, and then there's so many different kinds and it presents differently. And the research has really been um, not helpful, I think, in looking at some of the medical things. There's a giant study that's very successful right now on fecal transplant mm -hmm. for those on the autism spectrum. They just finished the study on children. And it was one of the most successful studies at uh, and seeing success at treating the autism symptoms, but also treating the gastrointestinal disorders that go along with that. So I think a big issue is um, that you know we're not, we don't really understand the human body as well as we think we do. And when I speak to researchers, they talk constantly about how we're really in the infancy of understanding how everything's connected. So I would agree with that. Definitely. Absolutely. Yes. You know, one of the things that I would like to talk about if you're comfortable is um, next week um, we're meeting with your son, Mark, and we're doing an entire show with just Mark. And he's going to talk about his perspective um, growing up with autism and how he overcame his challenges. Um, can you talk a little bit about like some of the studies that he's been involved with and the success rate that you've had with that? So um, Mark was in the Dr. Fine Good Outcome study um, from the University of Connecticut. Uh, that was the first study to be able to prove that with early intensive intervention that you could get really good outcomes. Mark was one of those kids that, that presented with a very good outcome. Most of the kids that presented in the, that were in that study that had had a tremendous success um, did not want publicity because they 
were doing so well, most people didn't even know they ever had autism. So there was only two, two families that were willing to do any press for that study. And it was a really controversial study at the time. It isn't anymore. It's, it's amazing what, a, what 10 years difference will make because the study, I think, finished in 2011. Um, and then it came out a couple of years later and we were on Good Morning America and um, interviewed by them. And also we did a big story with the New York Times Magazine. But at the time, uh, many, of the, many of the people and, and some doctors were even saying that, you know, the, the child must not have had autism to have shown so much improvement. Excuse me, her study was very rigorous. And when it came out, you just couldn't say that anymore. Um, yeah. And now I was just at a meeting with, and the room was filled with all doctors. And they were, they were talking about good outcomes. And, you know, 10 years ago, most of those doctors would have shake, shaken their head and said, that's just baloney. Right. And Every single doctor was in complete agreement that it's totally possible. So um, her study really, I think, uh, proved to society as a whole that people with autism can improve, get better, and do well. Absolutely. And, and when you meet Mark, you would never even consider, you would never even think about all the things that he's been through. You just see this wonderful, bright young man who's very comfortable in his own skin. I mean, he's a Flint Scholarship Award, uh, you know, recipient. He's, he's, he's articulate. He's, he's just a really well-rounded kid. You would never know that he's had such a struggle in his childhood. And you've well, obviously done was, a phenomenal uh, job. I mean, you've done, you've gotten him everything that he's needed. So as a parent, you've done everything. Well, thank you for that. He, um, when he was diagnosed with autism, he had lost all of his language. He was headbanging all the time. He had lots of maladaptive behaviors. Um, but we, we never believed in, in, um, in treating him like some like somebody that there was something wrong with that had to be fixed we really tried to look at it as you know helping him become his best self whatever that was going to be and at the time we didn't know what trajectory he was going to have but just like with every human being you try to be your best version of who you are and we tried to provide as much support around him to do that and we also looked at behavior as being something medical first and behavioral second, which, I, which I'm a real advocate. And I talk a lot about that a lot with families and the medical system because so often, let me give you an example. I have a client because um, I help people with insurance. So I have a client who is duly enrolled in a Medicare Medicaid plan. And he was extremely violent in his home and he was transported to the ER. He was in the hospital for a couple weeks and most people would have looked at him and said, you know, this is a behavioral issue. But in advocating for him with his family, we were able to get the system to really do a, a thorough evaluation and the violence came on due to seizures. So every wow, time he had a seizure, amazing. 
he had a violent outburst. So if you had just looked at him, you would have assumed he had this horrible, violent behavior, but it was totally medically caused. So it's really important, I think, with everyone, no matter what diagnosis they have, that when we see behaviors we don't like, we think about, is there something medically going on? And we evaluate that first before we assume it's some behavior that has to be, you know, fixed. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm so glad that you're there helping families advocate for their kids because a lot of people just don't really know which way to turn. They don't know what to do. So um, I thank you for this wonderful wealth of information that you're giving me. We have just a, um, a few seconds. We're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk with Cynthia McCluskey a little bit more about autism. Um, my name is Fazia Costi, and you can reach me at uh, Fazia at executivefunctioncoachaz.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You need to live up to your full potential. You've heard that for years, but now there's a channel to help you get there. Introducing the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Our listeners have told us that they want to be motivated, hear about success stories, and positive encouragement around the clock. And we've responded to you. The Voice America Empowerment Channel is the home of the world's top life coaches, entrepreneurs, and success experts. Listen to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's here at voiceamericaempowerment.com. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Focus on Success. To reach Fazia Costi or her guest on the live show, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 
You may also send an email to Fazia at executivefunctioncoachaz.com. Now, back to Focus on Success. Hi, I'm Fazia Costi, and today we are talking to Cynthia McCluskey about autism. And thank you again, Cynthia, for joining us today. You have been a phenomenal guest with a wealth of information. Um, can you, um, let's go ahead and just jump right in. Can you start talking a little bit about, you know, what social thinking is and why it's important? Um, sure. I, so I think the most popular therapy um, is applied behavioral analysis, ABA therapy. And um, I, I've never been a fan, a fan of that therapy. Um, it has sort of a, a bad reputation with adults on the spectrum, and it um, and it's. So I was looking for other things that I thought would be that would be more relationship based instead of just behavioral based. And and to be fair, I think ABA has changed over the years. Um, and it may be more about how we're keeping data now, but but back when my son was little, it was um, sitting at a table using um, cards and food to motivate them to do certain things. And to me, it looked like we were trying to train a dog, and I just was I'm not I wasn't cool with that. So it just didn't work for us. So I looked at floor time. We did a lot of uh, that relationship development intervention. And then I loved social thinking. Social thinking was invented by Michelle Garcia Winner. She was like a, <coughs> excuse me, she started off as a speech path. She calls herself a social cognitive therapist. And um, she's out of San Francisco She's brilliant, I think, and um, she um, she talks about, well, here's an example. So, ABA would um, look at eye contact and try to use food to get people to look, give you eye contact and reward it. And so, the way Michelle Garcia thought about it... Um, she thought that's that doesn't make sense. There has to be a reason why they're not using eye contact, right? And so why are we trying to just use <coughs> behavioral techniques to motivate them to have eye contact? So one of the things Michelle Garcia Winner noticed is that that people with autism didn't use eye contact because they didn't see the value in it. So one of the first things she did was she would show them, look, I'm looking at something on the wall and she would point it out and she would have another therapist take a string. So she would hold the string by her eye and the therapist would take the, scr the string to where she was looking. So the person on the, um, with autism could look and see, oh, she's looking at the clock, like so that they could get data um, and understand why people might do that. So I loved her concepts. I thought that they were pretty easy to do as a parent. Um, I loved the way that she talked about things. She didn't make it seem so, none of her concepts make it seem like there's something wrong with you if you have autism. She just talks about different 
deficits that you might want to work on and, and why that would benefit you. And um, she has really fun preschool programs and elementary school programs. And she talks about being how to be your own superhero and you can use your super strengths and she teaches you how to build those strengths so that you feel empowered to understand the world around you and how how other people might think um so it's a really interesting um way to look at things um and it's evidence-based um what's exciting is there's a ton of new research now so the only therapy that was considered evidence-based for a long time was uh aba therapy but um we now know that that's not true and center for medicaid and medicare encouraged the states to provide uh, many different behavioral interventions not just aba and so there's a variety of things lots of speech paths use the social thinking curriculum but also lots of therapists use the social uh, thinking curriculum you can buy all of it online under socialthinking.com and run it like what i did uh for my kiddo was i bought the social thinking curriculum I ran a Lego robotics club in my house and I used that curriculum as I ran the program. So I had peers for my child to uh, model and I taught all the kids the same stuff. And it was, and it was really a fun way to do it. And there was, it was, it's just a great um, program. So that's a choice that people can make. Um, Absolutely. I'm that's wonderful. You know, choice of modalities, because if you if there's 100 different kinds of autism, then we have to actually pick individualized therapies that make sense for that individual and not just pick one program and say everybody with autism needs to do this program doesn't make sense. Exactly. I, I completely agree with you. One of the other programs that um, I know that you've in, you've um, recommended to me for, for my other clients is peers. And I know that Mark also participates in peers. Can you tell us a little bit about peers and how that helps individuals? Oh my God. I love the peers program. That's how they used to I yeah. love it. I love that you get excited about this stuff. <laughs> I know I do. So they, um, and that, again, that is another uh, new, uh, it's not new, but it was just uh, a bunch of studies were just done and it's been proven that it's an evidence-based program. So that's another, and I'm working really hard on trying to bring that here to Arizona. Um, SARC is the only place that has peers here. It's only for high schoolers. They don't do the complete program. And, um, and so I want to figure out how to bring it here and make it available to people who are on Medicaid. Because um, there's currently not a provider that takes Medicaid for that for that program, but Peers is looking at how you uh, it's looking at the science of friendship and what is ecologically valid, and then teaching that. So the theory is that you don't even need a diagnosis of autism. But there's 20% of people who struggle with friendship, like it just is not intuitive to them, and then teaching. Uh, the skills to do that, to learn that. And the first thing they, they teach is uh, friendship is a choice. So I can choose to have you as a friend. You can choose me to have as a friend, or we can choose not to. So I love that because so often I think we're talking about 
uh, to people on the spectrum is you must fit in. Well, no, they don't have to if they don't want to. They have free will and they have choice and they need to see what is meaningful to them. So I love that, uh, that they look at it from that perspective. And then um, so much of our advice that we give about friendship is not ecologically valid, meaning it, it doesn't actually work that way. So when we, so I love this one. And this is so true for me. I was, when I was in high school, I was picked on all the time. And my mom would always say to me, just ignore the bully. If you ignore him, he will go away. Well, guess what? That's not ecologically valid at all. There's other techniques that you need to use and you have to define bullying in a, in a certain way because there's really several different kind of uh, bullying activities and the techniques that work are different with each one. Um, so there, I think their stuff is fantastic. And again, it's a model where um, you're not inherently relying on a provider. So peers has the parent as the social coach and they have the child in a program. So uh, my child attends once a week for 90 minutes and I attend at the same time in a different group for 90 minutes. We learn the same lesson, but I learn how to be a social coach and they learn how to do it. And then we provide support. If you look at the long-term research, one of the reasons ABA is so effective, it's, it's a very intensive program. It's like 20 to 40 hours a week. But if you look at other programming where you're training parents who spend 100% of their time with their kids, that is actually evidence-based as well. And we, if you're doing a therapy where you're only doing it one hour a week, you can't expect there to be huge improvement unless you have support within the family and those skills are being worked on on a regular basis. Absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Same with floor time. Floor time is another model where they teach the family how to interact. Same with relationship development intervention. Um, I love Paul Carrillo's program out of CFSS here in the Valley. His program is relationship based as well. Um, and you know, I, I just think relationship-based therapies are kinder, gentler, um, much less about I'm going to fix you and, um, and more about how can we make you your best person so that you're happy and you feel comfortable in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about you know, executive function, because based on what you just said, you know, I, when I meet a client for the first time, when I meet them, I always tell them you're exactly as you're meant to be. What we're going to do here is help improve the skill sets that you need to improve. And that's it. You know, I don't, I don't try to make anyone feel like they, they aren't already good enough. And I think that's really important, especially with kids who have uh, just a lot of challenges. They need to feel like they are exactly who they're meant to be because otherwise you start dealing with self-esteem issues, self-confidence issues and things like that. So one of the things that you and I have been working on together is um, executive function coaching for, for Mark. Um, Would you say that that is a helpful um, type? I wouldn't call it therapy, but would you say that that is helpful? Coaching is helpful in 
with clients who have autism or a diagnosis of autism? Uh, yeah, I do. I think it is helpful. I, I think, you know, both Mark and I are have dyslexia and we both have ADHD. And so obviously both of those diagnoses, dem- you know, clearly demonstrate some executive functioning issues. And uh, you don't feel good about yourself when you feel like you're dropping the ball on things. Um, And for me, I have scattered skills. So in some ways, I'm hyper-organized. In other ways, it's like a train wreck. And I know that Mark feels that same way. And so any support we can get in creating systems that help us be successful. Like, so here's, I, it's so funny because my dad has the same thing. So I lose my car keys. I've lost them my whole life. It's a serious problem. I can look for, I can look for hours. And uh, so I finally came up with this solution. I keep my car keys in the ignition of my car. And I was saying something to my father who does the same thing because he has the same issue. He keeps his, we, we came up with the same solution without even knowing it, with the same problem that we've always had. But now, how do you get into your car if, it, if you're at a parking lot? And- so I can put my keys in my purse when I'm out and about, but when I come home, the keys stay in the car. Gotcha. Okay. So, so they don't get lost at home, <laughs> which is where they tend to. And so Mark and I talk a lot about how we have to just figure out where our deficits are and then come up with innovative solutions that help us because everybody has deficits and you can't be a perfect person, right? And so I think the executive functioning coaching you're doing with Mark is helping him come up with those um, solutions. He didn't have to spend 20 years losing his car keys to figure out the solution (laughs) to the car. You know what I'm saying? A long time. That's a long time to lose your keys. It's a long ass time. It is. It's really bad. Well, you know, I see that a lot um, with adults um, who lose their, you know, their car keys, their wallet, their purse, like they just, they walk in the door and they mindlessly just set it down somewhere and they don't remember where. And so one of the things I recommend is having a landing spot. So right inside your door, have like a small table. So as soon as you walk in, that's where your keys go. That's where your sunglasses go. That's where your wallet goes or your purse goes. And people who use a system like that typically are much more successful um, than, you know, just trying to figure it out for 20 years. But I like yeah. your solution too, you know, <laughs> leaving it in the car when you come home. It's, it's, it's exactly it where it needs to be, right? As long as your car's in a garage, it's safe. It's, there's yeah. no reason why you can't. <laughs> if you park it on the street, that, that's going to pose a whole different problem. That's right. That solution wouldn't have worked then. So do you think executive function skills... Um, defi- or executive function deficiencies are pretty common with kids with autism? Frankly, I think they're pretty common with everybody. Okay, you know? see, I, I would agree with you. <laughs> That's why people hire people to come in and organize their house. You know, I, I think we all have issues around that. They might be different. They might be less noticeable than some people versus others. Um, there's this great book called all kinds of minds it's it's written for middle schoolers Mm -hmm. and it's five kids that are friends and each kid has strengths and each kid has weaknesses and i love that book because it just shows you like 
there is no perfect person. So I might be great at something, but not great at something else. And you're going to be good at that thing, maybe. So it's all about um, just trying to create your best life and your best self. And I think for Mark, and it's been super helpful because his issues were um, were interfering with his success. And so he started to feel like he wasn't good enough when he really is. He's a bright, uh, capable person. And he just needed some techniques to figure out how to be organized. Absolutely. Um, so from what I'm hearing you say, it's not more common to have executive function skill deficiencies with kids who have autism or an autism I mean, I don't know. I just feel like everybody does in one yeah. way or another. So you're not noticing it more in, in, in autism than you are in, in just the general population? Well, it's hard to say because a lot of times with someone with autism, they will be in a special school or they'll be... You know, their circumstance might be different. Um, so I, I, I guess I can't really say. I, but I think with people with autism, their anxiety level is high. And sure. I think the anxiety level is high because, you know, people do things and have motivations they don't necessarily understand or label correctly. And I'm sure the same with executive functioning stuff. So anything that we can do to lower anxiety um, for anyone is, I think, beneficial. Absolutely. Um, So let's talk a little bit about COVID. Um, How has COVID changed things for Autism Society, for you as a family? You know, how has COVID changed the way things function um, over the last year? Because it's, so it's been about a year. COVID, for Autism Society, we moved to online. So we still provide all the support we provided before, but we're doing it via Zoom. Um, that isn't as good as it would be in person, because I think everybody's sort of Zoomed out. You know? Exactly. Do you find fewer people are participating? Yeah, I, I do. Um, and I think the kids are on Zoom all day, and then who wants to be Zoom at night? I mean, it's very hard. Um, and I think with autism, there's so many uh, therapies that they do. And I'm not sure those therapies are really that effective via Zoom. Um, they might be more effective if you've had an ongoing long-term relationship with a provider. But what if you need a new provider? Then how do you build that rapport I mean, it's very hard to do via Zoom, I think. So I think it's impacted um, families in a variety of negative ways. Can you Um, talk specifically about what therapies may not be as effective through Zoom? Well, I've heard from families, you know, a lot of families are doing speech, OT, PT. I mean, OT and PT are pretty hands-on. Speech is sometimes hands-on, depending on what they're working on. The younger the child is, the harder it is to do it. Can you imagine trying to do speech therapy with a three-year-old via Zoom? No. No, I agree with you completely. I just wanted to hear your opinion because I I think that's something our audience needs to hear. So it's really hard. effective online. 
No, I don't think they are. And I think education isn't as necessarily as effective. I think families are really stressed out because now they they have to either work via Zoom, then have their kid on Zoom, then do therapies via Zoom. Um, but on the other hand, you know, what are our choices? We now have 66 people um, who have passed away from covid who have a developmental disability and are getting services from the Division of Developmental Disabilities. Um, so that's a higher proportion than you would expect. Um, so we do know that people with developmental disabilities are at higher risk of becoming sicker with COVID and possibly dying. So I understand why we are all taking these precautions, but it just makes life hard. Uh, I think, um, all families are under a high level of stress. I mean, we're not necessarily prepared to live through a pandemic. Um, and I think when you have a special needs kid, it makes it that much more stressful. Agreed. I, I think it's been a very stressful time. I've seen more crisis situations in my clients in the last six months, six to eight months than I've seen in the last 30 years I've worked. Um, it's it's been a really challenging time and it's heartbreaking. We've really been creative. Like uh, Mark was just asking me, why are you buying me so much Lego? And I said, because Legos, you're really good at it. You really like it. It's something to entertain you. And given the situation, it's really good for your mental health. Absolutely. He was like, you're right. That's really true. And we play family game night and we're doing, we're reading uh, a book study together. And so we have all these things that we've built in to provide support and connection. And I think that's what all families are trying to do. I mean, he should be in college right now and he's home and um, I'm happy that he's home. I love having him home. Sure. Uh, and I'm trying to just you know, cherish that time, but also make sure that we have enough things in our life that, that make us happy and keep us energized um, and really think about our mental health because I think people are really struggling. I agree. I, I see a lot of um, individuals who should be in college right now who are not, they're at home and it's, it's, it's just a really challenging time. So I, I like that you're doing things that are creative and fun, just trying to stay positive and um, really focused on your mental health because we need to come out of this feeling strong and healthy and ready to tackle whatever comes next. Cause I don't think this is going to end our lives. It's just, a, it's a pit stop. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, so. Every generation's had it right. You know, we've all uh, had to deal with something. generation was Vietnam war. My grandparents was world war two. I mean, we've all had trials that we've had to live through and this is, this is this generation's, yeah. Just one, hopefully not of many, but one that we have exactly. to. Well, Cynthia, I really appreciate everything that you've talked about today. You are a wealth of information. I want to thank you once again for coming on the show. We have about a minute left. Um, how could somebody contact you if they had questions about autism? Um, is there a phone number or an email or a website that well, you can check offer? Out, first of all, check out Autism Society's website because we have a ton of information on there. And that is www.phxautism.org. And we have an Autism 101 class that people can take. That they get lots of information from. And I, um, I have a video up there that they can watch. Um, 
they're welcome to give me a call or check out my website. I help people with insurance. My website's www.cmacinsurance.com. And they can always give me a call at 602-571-1118. Thank you so much, Cynthia. Cynthia, I'm Fazia Acosti. And next week, we're going to be talking to Mark McCluskey, which is Cynthia's wonderful son. And he's going to talk to us about his experience growing up with the diagnosis of autism and um, where he's at today. So um, once again, thank you for listening. I'm Fazia Acosti, and you can reach me at... Um, executive function coach az.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Focus on Success. Please join your host, Fazia Costi, for another program next Wednesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week. <laughs>